Hello and welcome to FinTech Impact. I'm your host, Jason Pereira. Today on the show, I actually have a group of people, so it's a little bit different, but I have Lori Weir, CEO of Four Eyes Financial, along with Kendall McMahon, CTO of Four Eyes Financial, and Jeff Harvey, Head of Strategic Growth for Four Eyes Financial. Four Eyes Financial is a data discovery tool that can be used by brokers and dealers to help gather information and transform their businesses from one that's more transaction-based to one that's more relationship-based. And with that, here's my interview. Hello, everyone. Hi, Jason. Thanks for joining me. It's great to be here. Yes, well, coming in from St. John's, sorry, St. John, I once flew to the wrong one, so I made this mistake more than once. <laughs> See if you can spell it correctly. Uh, no, let's not do that. No, 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 there's no there's no ST, it's the full saint. Got it, right? Okay, there you okay, go. perfect. So three of you from Four Eyes Financial, tell us about Four Eyes Financial. So Four Eyes Financial is a digital discovery platform, and our purpose is to help advisors and clients move from transactional communication to truly transformational communication. Okay, we're going to dissect what that means uh, and we'll go from there. But tell me about the history of what led to the foundation of this company and the journey that that took. So my background is in consulting. I worked for a lot of firms in Atlanta, Canada. People can generally guess who those are in a lot of different areas. And uh, I also worked in the wealth space with Scotia Wealth and I was exposed to their businesses that work with mass affluent, high net worth, and the family office level. And during my time there, uh, I saw a real opportunity to improve the advisor client experience. Mm -hmm. And I could see that the struggles that existed, especially inside of the large organizations with consolidating data, being able to efficiently organize information in order to have meaningful conversations quickly. So yes, a common problem. We often talk on the show about the difficulty surrounding all these legacy enterprise services that basically were never meant to, to talk to anything else yet. Meanwhile, I've now created this fragmented picture of the client. Well, you got it. Exactly. Yeah. And so Kendall and I are partners in life as well as in the business. And that's uh, a bold move, but yes, <laughs> both entrepreneurs. And so I would share some of my stories with him and ideas. And as an investor myself, I said, you know, I think we can do a better job at pulling together data and presenting information and creating multi-channel experiences for investors and advisors. And as entrepreneurs, of course, we said, yeah, well, let's stop talking about it and let's just build something. Excellent. Okay. So let's talk about the entire transactional versus transformational approach. Tell me what that means to you. So for us, what that means is in the past, it was simple enough to show to people from a risk perspective, here's your standard deviation, here's your sharp ratio. Here's some things All that- All the terms they really don't care about. They don't care about. <laughs> and they're, they're, they're yeah. important. They're pieces of data that are relevant, mm -hmm. but what they don't really get into is what does that really mean for the client? Mm -hmm. You know, How would you feel if, for example, you actually lost 15% of your total portfolio. Mm -hmm. How would that make you feel? How would that affect your life? What does that mean for you in terms of achieving your goals? And so risk is important and performance is important, but how those two things combine to affect me achieving my goals is really what's most important. And Absolutely. so our digital platform was built with that in mind to be able to really pull in the hard to obtain data from clients in a way that's pleasurable for them and useful for not just the advisor, but at the firm level as well so that advisors could spend time on those meaningful conversations and what we would describe as transformational kinds of conversations rather than just facts. So basically in my world, planning focus as opposed to just product focus. Exactly, right. Okay, so take us through what your product does. I mean, your website clearly states there's about four core elements, but in your words, what's the experience? 
So the experience is our process, and I'm a process-oriented person. I'm a black belt in Lean Six Sigma. I like to look at everything from a process mm -hmm. perspective. And so whether it's a prospecting... So this world must just drive you insane then. A little bit. <laughs> <laughs> You're like at the upper echelon, like literally a black belt in Six Sigma, the upper echelon of efficiency, and you come to this industry, and you're like, oh, like everybody's solution is another sheet of paper. <laughs> it's, a, it's a perfect playground, actually. <laughs> yeah, it's for setting things on fire, but continue on, sorry. That's quite all right. So whether it's um, engaging a prospect or re-engaging a client, the process is the same. So our platform begins with collecting uh, risk profile information that later gets plugged into KYC. We allow the, in a self-directed way, the prospect or client to also uh, establish their financial goals. And then they can pull together through aggregation or other means their current investment accounts. And so these are the three core pieces of information that are required in order to produce meaningful insights and meaningful conversations. And so this can be self-directed, the prospect client doing this on their own. At any point in that process as they're engaging in completing those three tasks, they can actually connect through co-browsing feature with their advisor. They can schedule a meeting at any point during that process with their advisor if they choose to abandon going through themselves. Depending on their temperament uh, and their approach to life, they may get started and say, okay, it's better if I sit in front of Jason and start going shoulder to shoulder and having my advisor, he or she actually take the wheel and input the data. What's mm -hmm. most important though, is that the data gets into one repository. And hopefully never gets rekeyed again. Exactly, that <laughs> yes. is our ultimate goal. Yes, I've already told people at my dealership that, you know, I want you to get a post, I'm gonna get you a poster printed up. It says double entry is failure. <laughs> like, end of story. That is a, a, a lean principle. <laughs> yes, it is. It's, it's, it's also a rational one. Yeah. <laughs> like, what, no carbon copies? Yeah. No, like, <laughs> why I should ever have to do something twice in the digital world is beyond me, but uh, that's just, that's just so bottom line is, is that you, on both sides of the equation, so the client experience is they get this, they get this interpretation, they get set up their account, they put all their data in one spot, the advisor, what's the advisor experience look like from their standpoint? The advisor actually gets a dashboard that they can track that process so I can see where Lori is, if she was my prospect or my client for an annual review, I can see where Lori is at each stage of that process, has she completed a risk profile, how many goals she's added, what she's added, what accounts she's added. I can also see the, some of the scenario output results from that. So the advisor actually can track that workflow, see if she's stuck. And then if she's not stuck, he then actually gets a detailed report of pre-meeting sort of pre -meeting analysis, if you will. So prior to that first meeting, be it uh, the prospect perspective, is I will have a detailed report showing me all the accounts, the holdings, the goals, uh, statistical analysis, volatility analysis of the goals relative to time horizons um, and their needs. And that would all be prior to my first meeting. So when I actually have that meeting with Lori, I'm not talking about a solution versus gathering data at that first initial meeting. So it's interesting too. So if you're getting all that and you're seeing where the holdups are, you must be collecting data on what's stopping clients altogether as a means of iterating the process. Is that uh, something you, like, what have you found has been the holdups and what have you found, like, what have you done to kind of smooth that process along? We're just starting to roll this out right now. Okay. So really most people have just gone through it for the pilot people we've had testing it there, they haven't had an issue. Mm -hmm. Some have chose to aggregate, some have chose that they'll just actually enter the, the, their holdings manually. Could those people like masochistic, like, like they literally want to enter in holdings <laughs> manually? Well, I think the reality is, is in the process is today, client, we've discovered two things. Clients are giving their statements to a prospective advisor anyways yeah. to get a second opinion. And or, and we found this within the banks as they won't admit it, but is that customers or prospects are giving their login IDs to their accounts. 
And so yeah. that creates a whole other layer of privacy and firm issues. So yeah, I mean, I think that's a bigger issue. I think I think it's symptomatic of the banks ignoring the way people have actually used these accounts forever. I mean, how many people have bookkeepers or accountants who, you know, de facto act as controllers, right? Mm-hmm. Why is it pot why are there not limited access? Uh, logins that we can use that basically allow us to not have to encroach upon that level of security. I mean, right. If anything, they think it's more secure this way. I think it's less. Absolutely. Yeah. It's Agreed. interesting. I mean, on that thread is one of the things we've identified uh, and we're launching with one of our clients is a a new way of approaching the client portal, what we call the client discovery zone. And in that is we're creating the facility for both the advisor and client to interact digitally, mm-hmm. but as well as share documents. And so most of the independent firms that we've been working with, a lot of them work with third-party accountants uh, and planning groups to facilitate that client relationship and or the client has other parties that they want to interact with that. So what we're enabling is the sharing of documents as well within the platform. And so as Kendall can talk a little bit about the architecture, but not only does the client data reside within the firm's own AWS cloud, but so do all these documents. And so from a security perspective, there's one point of content the advisor and client can now interact in a more digital way. Mm-hmm. So to the issue that you're talking about, how do advisors work and how do customers work and how do high net worth customers work is they work more, I would say, agile uh, than call it the traditional models within the banks. And who retains ownership of that? The client severs the relationship with the advisor. Do they still have access to all that information? And, and those are some of the details we're working out with. Mm-hmm. So how we've structured our relationships with the firm is data residency when we bring in data from the typically the carrying platform, if they're an introducing broker uh, or if they're self-clearing, will have their data fed to their own cloud environment. That residency belongs to the firm. The client forms, we're working through the privacy perspective on that, but in that is that the feature functionality will allow the client to dissolve that and have documents moved out. So we're just working through that privacy issue there. On the aggregation side, we give the client total control over what accounts they choose to share with the advisor. Whereas a lot of platforms in the past, if you've used an aggregator, will basically expose everything yeah. mm-hmm. to the client. We allow the client to choose what they're aggregating. From the severing the relationship standpoint, from a compliance perspective, we'll archive documents for the firm that they can hold, but everything else can get removed. So now are you, so let's talk about aggregation. First of all, what kind of adoption level are you seeing? Like how much resistance are you seeing to the use of aggregation? We've just starting to launch it, so we haven't really seen the resistance mm-hmm. gate or haven't even seen the take up game. So we're sort of playing with that as we go forward now. Yeah, I mean, in my own personal endeavors in, in my day job, you know, it's interesting. The U.S., they're much more used to this. It's mm-hmm. been around for much longer. Mm-hmm. In Canada, you tell people like, oh, I want to get all your data from your bank account. So you get this almost like a look of horror. Like, what are you going to do with it? It's like, I don't really care what you're doing with it. I just need to know where the money's going, right? And you explain it, it's fine. But there's just like this unfamiliarity with it. And now, are you basically, at this stage, is the data like on, on transactional data just flowing straight through? Or are you somewhere, or like, can they can they opt to share only categories of spend, expenditure? Right now, we're allowing where they can choose the account. Yeah. Where next step will be allowing them to yeah. share the category. So this is a, a joke. I, I, I this is a problem I affectionately refer to as the strip club problem, in that clients may spend money on entertainment and they're happy to let you know that, but they don't know want to let you know where they spend it, right? So there is a um, there's a certain level of disclosure that you know I would say you need to you need to contemplate. We've kept it from the transaction level that we categorize yeah. it. So the only yeah. view that an advisor gets from a cash flow analysis perspective is cash flow okay. category. Fair category. enough. So that's yeah, that's I think that's that's a big step as well because uh, I know. 
I, I make that joke because that's the most apparent one that comes to mind for whatever reason. But in general, yeah, I mean, people don't necessarily, there's a, there's, in, in financial planning in general, people often hold back for the thought that this is going to be a judgment process, right? Mm-hmm. Which, you know, one of the first things we address is to say that's not the case. But especially when you're, when you're basically pulling off the kimono to the degree of showing transactions, then, you know, there's a real judgment there. Like, oh, wow, that's a lot at the LCBF. Well, whatever, whatever uh, liquor control board you're under, that's a lot at the local liquor store, right? So and we've enabled the, um, the client discovery zone as well. The firm can choose whether or not they want to show that cash flow analysis to the clients. So it's about being transparent. So the yeah. firm can actually say, here's everything I have. I'll expose that to you. You can see it's the same thing I'm seeing. But yeah. well, I mean, on the cash flow, I mean, in my previous world, I worked in the receipt space. And so what banks can see and what they don't see are dramatic between the actual receipt and what actually shows on the visa Absolutely. or the account statement. So. I would suspect if someone was using one of those locations as for their entertainment, it's probably not showing strip club, but probably showing something more like Joe's restaurant, (laughs) I I suspect. I I have no idea how they code themselves. But the the, the reality is is the bank doesn't even have visibility into into the lower level line item data. So absolutely. uh, I mean, you have the problem, you know, that's the Costco problem, right? You can literally go there to buy all your groceries or you're going there to buy a new fridge or you're going there to buy, you know, a jet ski, whatever it is heck it is right mm-hmm. and really how do you itemize that right and it's you know i had a more recent conversation with uh with the ceo of cash flow basically said you know in a lot of ways it doesn't matter it matters is what, what are you spending on core versus optional items yeah. right yeah good so basically what kind of integrations or have you guys worked out thus far what are you planning on working on we get a lot of questions from firms so it as part of our digital discovery we do scenario planning mm-hmm. and what we call financial planning light so just basically the, the simple tools a client can play around with on their side yeah they can play around with on their side or they can do it shoulder to shoulder with the advisor mm-hmm. they can take a look you know from an um, income and spending events um, around education insurance and uh, they can take a look at these things and play around with how that's going to affect uh, how that's going to affect other goals and what we've heard from i'd say broadly across the industry is that the financial planning tools that they have are fairly static. They'd like them to be more dynamic. They're sitting in I have shelves. this conversation with manufacturers all the time. Yeah. Right. So our lives are busy. They're dy- our lives are dynamic and our plans yeah. have to be dynamic. And so we don't put ourselves out there first and foremost as a financial planning company, but clearly the ability to run scenarios is, is critical to understand your financial situation and how you're going to uh, move forward to achieving your goals. And so we feel that our our platform and the financial planning light piece does about 80% of the, hip, the heavy lifting. Mm-hmm. We don't get into trust and estates mm-hmm. or corporate class, but most firms have trust and estate people and financial planning capacity inside their organizations when it's time to do something that might be a bit more detailed. And so, for example, we've had some requests to integrate into uh, Navi Plan. Oh, in Canada, what a surprise. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's something we're exploring. Not criticizing you, Tony, if you're listening. Positioning. <laughs> <laughs> From an integration standpoint, I mean, we've kind of part of our journey is we've been in through just about every bank channel and have primarily focused on the independence because for us, it's a pathway to revenue, quicker decisions. But the integration capability really dictates kind of how we've been going to market. So in the independence space, it's firm has the willingness, but not necessarily the skill set to move to a club. And so how we've been enabling that uh, is through the skill sets of the organization two ways. One is, is literally lifting a firm 
entire client business to the cloud mm -hmm. to allow that to be the layer to start layering on our services and other services that they're seeing that they want to take advantage of because they're API based and they're cloud based. The second layer is firms are going great, but my client portal looks like it's 1990. How am I going to interject this into my client or my prospect experience? It doesn't match and they're static. And so we've revamped that client experience. We call it the client discovery zone. Mm -hmm. And that's where we merge the client records from the book of record or the portfolio management system with all the statements, performance records, but then layer in their content and then bring forward our content. And that starts enabling layers of solutions we have, but also now allows the firm to enable other cloud-based solutions into their, into their experience. And right now they're kind of locked into this siloed approach Typically, because they're bolted to their caring group. Yeah, that happens. Um, the you know, and also, I think one of your big frustrations is I talked to other vendors like this. I mean, you guys, and you look at, for example, the financial planning softwares are probably the easiest one to pick on. They're all most of them are a little bit legacy at the very least, to say the least. And you know, really, what we should be having is two-way communication between the different tools that we have out there, whether it be risk assessment uh, at the portfolio systems, your, your tools for onboarding. And if they do exist, they're all bespoke, right? And they're mm -hmm. all on legacy technology. And frankly, I got to feel like those companies are under immense pressure to re-architect everything properly mm -hmm. from scratch, which yeah. <laughs> that's not the small spend. So I'm excited to see where it takes us in the next couple of years, because frankly, I feel like even in the US, who's far ahead of us, on interconnectivity, it's still very rudimentary when you really look at it. It's all very surface information. Nothing's, you know, it's maybe pushing out information, but not function, not, not interoperability of these systems. Yeah. Right. I would add to that is that a lot of times firms and advisors think about what's the most innovative product out there and how can I be 10 steps ahead of my competition in terms of bells and whistles and yeah. feature functionality. And from our perspective at Forays Financial, it's you only need to be one step ahead of your competition. So I don't need it. If I'm, if I'm running from a lion, I don't have to be passing the slower you, back. <laughs> you got it. Exactly yeah. right. And so what is key is not being the most innovative, but being the most integratable. Mm. And, and I think for that matter. Exactly. And so we really focus on integration. Uh, integration is key to a seamless experience that's pleasurable. And it's really key for making sure that you can actually be one step ahead of your competition because yeah. features roll out not every six months, they roll out daily. <laughs> In our yeah. world, we see improvements to what was put out a month ago and people want that new improvement. And if you haven't built for integration yeah. and that kind of operation, then you're never going to be able to take advantage of what's next. Oh, great. And it's a, it's, a, it's a monumental shift in thinking for a lot of these companies to be mm -hmm. able to say that, you know, we have to lay the architecture down for the next, next 15 years right. and be ready to move to more of that. I think when it, to add to that, I think one of the interesting approaches we've taken is Jeff talked about lifting one of our clients to the cloud that we did last fall, is we're a vendor who says, it's your data, you own the data, we don't want to hold you hostage. How can we help you drive value from your data? And that was the initiative we took last fall. Yeah, versus the old solid approach where it's like, oh, you're putting in our thing and it's going to stay there forever. You know, and so you're going to pay us to maintain it forever. <laughs> and exactly. And it's, I mean, ultimately, we want to have our platform connected to a marketing. I mean, we're entrepreneurs in the business of making money. But how can we add value to that data through our platform and enable We did an open architecture on our platform. Mm -hmm. So as Lori said, you can take all of our stack or you can take components that fit your flow right now so you're not disrupting your entire so A couple of interesting points there. First of all, how challenging has been the data migration? Because... I know from talking to dealers, uh, this stuff ain't clean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. One of our biggest surprises, actually, is how dirty the data is. It's brutal. Yeah. It's, it's, it's shockingly bad. Oh, yeah. We could go on for scars with cleaning Morningstar data. I mean, it was our biggest shock coming into the industry, finding well, the I data. Mean, you know, the number of times I listen to firms talk about these giant projects for deployment of 
large CRM systems or whatever it is, and you hear the price tag, you're like, Jesus, that's insane. You start doing the math, you're like, how's that work? Licenses cost this, and you find out, no, no, you're rolling up a data cleansing project into that line item, right. and that data cleansing project is 90% of your expense. Well, I, I would say, you know what, the interesting thing was, our first uh, lift to the cloud was three months, on time, on budget. How big a, st how big a data <laughs> they warehouse was there? There was uh, six, Five and a half, six years of uh, transaction data for the firm. All right, that's not too bad. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, but I mean, you start looking at some of these cases. I mean, even my own client book, we got data going back to the early '90s, right? I started. I shudder to think of what that would take to actually fix all that. But let's yeah. talk. <laughs> let's talk. Well, yeah, I'm talking yeah, talking to my so dealer <laughs> shortly. So, but, but, but I think what, what we've discovered is there's three layers, and now fourth, it's been discovered, which is. There's three experiences that we've been trying to manage. Initially, it was kind of client advisor experience. Uh, and firms recognize, particularly in the independent channel, that the advisor is the, the customer, which is yeah. a little bit different than call it the bank-owned approach, which is, is the customer is really the firm's customer. Yeah. Uh, and the advisor may be the mechanism for that. Yeah, they can uh, call themselves and people can self employed debate but on that. Yeah. Uh, but really is we've been initially focused on client view, advisor view. Mm -hmm. But what's been coming out of this with this having access to all the data is the firm view. Yeah. And the fourth layer that's coming out of this now is now the firm has greater insight into their business because we're able to dial up other services for that business yeah. to drive analytics on the business, but also for the advisors. Yeah. And the fourth view that's coming out, which is we have a couple of dealers talking with the regulators is, do we permission a fourth view for the regulator, which is allowing them to look into the items that they would use as part of their ongoing conducts, but a much more transparent perspective. So my answer, yes. I mean, first of all, let's go back. I always, I chuckled there for a second because the thinking of this day and age that we have these mega corporations that can't dashboard their daily activity is just hilarious. Like, I mean, mm -hmm. how many of these companies still, how many weeks or, or months does it take to get a quarter end done when really that is just mm -hmm. all really live data that can be reconciled on a daily basis? And then as for the regulatory stuff, I mean, to me, yes. I mean, you know, that's, that's an ideal state. Is everybody on the same page with the same data at the same time, mm -hmm. catching this stuff in real time? And think about the number and just what you said there, think about the reduced burden on the dealerships on regulatory disclosure if this stuff just flows through, right? And the reduction in cost and overhead across the board. I mean, I'm sure I'm preaching to the choir because I'm sure that's what you're telling them, <laughs> but nevertheless. So what's your reception been thus far from the dealers you've spoken to? I mean, I think the challenge with a lot of these people is they're not in the world of technology. They never wanted to be a tech firm. They're being pushed into this. And some of the, even though some of the ones that were, were forward thinking enough for years to like kind of try some bleeding edge stuff, got burned because these ideas just, the time wasn't right. Yeah. So what have you seen in terms of reception? Part of my career was at TD. So I lived through the, the, oh. the data burn of a unified multi Boca record platform. The legendary story of the, <laughs> However, <laughs> but its yeah. vision was was correct. But typically, I mean, we've been focused on independent dealers. And so the, the reality is, is you're not looking at the same multi lines of business to try and unify your business or your customers. So we've successfully unified the IBM book record data with a portfolio management system to provide the, the history of that data view. And now firms are now receptive to layering on the analytics, what they haven't had is they identified us as being a partner to get them there. Mm -hmm. So as although we have feature functionality around our existing product set, where they gap have the gap in their firm is not the technical skills. And the other vendors that have been coming to the table have been more vendor related. And so mm -hmm. we're partnering around helping firms consult and layer them to the cloud mm -hmm. and then layer our services in. And I think that's where firms, we're finding a lot of the independents are very receptive 
because they're not going to engage a Deloitte and her Accenture, nor can no. they afford them. And those projects are just way too big. Yeah. But we're helping them guide them through how to get there. And they get scared and they off when they hear these budgets, right? Like yeah. They see these massive budgets and they're like, oh my God, that would bankrupt the firm. When really it's like, well, these people are charging top dollar because they can get away with it with Fortune 500s, but there's other options out there. Correct. Exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, 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 you know, it's unfortunate. I mean, in an ideal world, you wouldn't have to do that consulting because the data would be in, a stat, in some sort of status that it would actually be accessible. And yeah, I think you kind of hit on something. A lot of vendors come into this space saying, hey, I built this widget. This is great. Plug into it. And they're right. like, plug into it? I don't even have an outlet. Are you kidding me? <laughs> exactly. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's like that old one when they first invented the washing machine story from, I can't remember. Yeah, I was like, whose baby's that? Yeah, they had no, all by that. Yeah, no one could plug it into anything. It's exactly what we it's found. hilarious. No monorails here. No. no monorails. <laughs> oh, Lord. So talk to me about the degree of customization that different dealerships um, and vendors get to uh, dictate with your software. Well, our platform, we've designed it such that if we're providing it to a client, they get our complete stack mm -hmm. and then they can choose the components they want to turn on. And as we're going up for our first two clients here, each have got some tweaks that they want, but we're taking those tweaks that both want and then adding it to the main stack. So if your client X and you decide, hey, I'd like to have that too, then we'll talk to you about, hey, we'll turn that on for you. Mm -hmm. um, we don't believe in keeping a custom builds for each client. It's our framework is our framework. We mm -hmm. push the same framework out to everybody. Everyone gets the same tool set and you choose which one you want to turn on. Yeah, it's an interesting challenge because I always joke around about, well, okay, I always make this complaint that you can, especially for the example, I'll be able to financial planning software again, you can have two identical looking reports because we're using the same software but vastly different experiences, right? So the, the modularity of these systems has to be built in from day one, right? Because no two people, no two dealerships want to look identical, right? And last, you know, I often, the other joke I'll make is, is the expense of e-money in the U.S. where it's like, you know, everybody's using the same bloody mm -hmm. dashboard system. The only difference is the logo. And, you know, what is that? When you switch from advisor, you really didn't have a good experience with to a new one. You're just like, oh, okay, it's starting off on the exact same foot. Yeah, I, I would say there's there's two sides of that coin. I, I can see that. Some of the firms we're talking to, and I kind of divide the independent space into the enlightened and need, know that they need to move and others that are still stuck saying we don't need to, things Things will turn around. Well, <laughs> it's, it's been 10, 15 years yeah. and it's the same headwinds, tailwinds on, on everyone's slide deck. But with respect to call it the money perspective is, is there's one thing that everyone has the same dashboards, but I think firms, if it's how they use the data. Yes. And it's the insights and value that they use from that As data opposed to, to drive the relationship of that data in most cases. Exactly. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, we have the ability to customize to a level around colors and, and formats. We view that if it's the power of the insights, mm -hmm. that will be the differentiator for the firms and not necessarily purely the technology. Well, I, I sincerely believe we are entering the age of behavioral finance testing simply because now with this kind of data, we can start running all yeah. kinds of little programs yeah. and nudges. And it can become, if anything, and test them in real time to see what's actually affecting yeah. what's not. I think that also is potentially dangerous realm because we have to look at incentives, right? Mm -hmm. I trust every Canadian bank as far as I can throw them. And frankly, I think that their incentives are misaligned in many cases. And this is just my constant harping on them. And frankly, if they are nudging me, I don't trust it, right? I think you have to look very closely at the way your business is structured and how you're incentivized to help a client and make sure that it's actually in line with their best interest and then be able to take that data and harness it in a good way as opposed to something that's just self-beneficial. Anyway, that's my side note rant, but I think we're entering an interesting time where I think we're gonna see not only that stuff start to come to fruition, but maybe some companies held to account for the nudges that they're putting out there. Interesting, yeah. Yeah, yeah we're excited to uh, get the data running through so that we can start running some interesting um, yeah. algorithms and, well, I mean, it's, we're and gonna learn, discover, start learning. 
all kinds of behavioral things we never yeah. even knew existed. It's a treasure trove, really. It really about. is. Yeah. yeah, that's the fun part. Yeah, a lot of academic papers coming in the next couple of years based on this stuff once we get into it. So tell me, what do you guys have planned for the future for this platform? I think Jeff put it nicely. I mean, first, it's getting these firms their data in one place so that we can unleash it and release it into using our services and other services that are API, uh, mm-hmm. require API enablement. We are really focused on communication and it sounds a little uh, marketing-ish around moving from transactional to transformational communication, but that's at the core of what we want to do. And in terms of the future, I think it, you kind of touched on it. There's a lot to be learned as the data starts running through and we start doing analysis on the data, we'll learn about what feature functionality should come next. There are things that we can't, as entrepreneurs and uh, technologists and just always curious and interested in the market, we've always got skunk works on the go. Mm-hmm. So we're already running some stuff around what does a keyboard list uh, organization look like and how do we plug into that? Kendall can speak to that um, around some little skunk work that he's on. organization. <laughs> Uh, so, so what so, am I telling Alexa to do? <laughs> Something to that effect. Yeah, why, why, please, yeah. Well, Alexa, you're getting daily brief. You come in the office today. Yeah. Alexa, what's my daily brief? So give me yeah. my dashboard, my clients, which client should I be looking at today? Look at my trade blotter. Tell me my exceptions coming yeah. from that. It's interesting. I still look at that sort of stuff. And I had this conversation on a previous podcast about that's level one thinking on this yeah. stuff, right? It's, yes. you know, it's replacing the current actions, which frankly, I mean, you can mm-hmm. argue if that's beneficial or not, because if you're adept with the mouse and the keyboard, you can do it fast and you can say it, right? It's the next level stuff. It's mm-hmm. when we start getting to the ability to cross-reference things and, and start making demands of it that we yes. probably couldn't harvest that information in that, over the course of hours manually, but now we'll be able to do it yeah. quickly. And to elaborate on that, I mean, where we're seeing the data flow is the Alexa is kind of a magical experience, but it kind of highlights what you can do, whether it's a dashboard or whether it's through a voice activated command is layering the the context of that data with other insights in the system Mm -hmm. together. And so what I mean by that is why shouldn't you see a list of your clients first thing in the morning that are drifting from their goals and risk factors uh, first and address that and start presenting information in a way that helps you action your day Mm -hmm. or allow the advisor to key the criteria that they want to see to action their day, but have the data correlate to present the insights versus a list and then have to go and look and check the PM system and then check what was the risk profile and and do this whole dynamic piece or whether it's the compliance department getting the trigger, but then then they got to do their research and send an email. Why isn't that caught like up front mm-hmm. and deliver to both so that things can be actioned in a timely yeah. way, makes the firm efficient, mm-hmm. adds, allows the advisor to be proactive and see the stuff before yeah. the compliance team's coming at them. And that's where I kind of see as the context as you layer that data is to bring those insights forward. Yeah, I really just look at that as simply basically moving the, the action from being what they tell you to their actual behavior, right? Mm-hmm. You know, when you actually have look-throughs on what they're spending, what they're doing, how often they're checking their, their accounts, and you can see the deviations, you know, whatever they tell you they're comfortable with, that's not what they're comfortable with. You know, the experience is going to teach us that. Mm-hmm. You know, here's the thing. Everything we're talking about in terms of moving away from transactional, I mean, that can wax philosophically about it, the industry's needs for change and how this is the way we need to go and move more towards a consulting style of, of making people reach their lifetime goals. But this is not a small culture change for a lot of organizations. Like, what are you seeing in terms of, what kind of resistance are you seeing towards that kind of message? Like, is that, has that been a problem for you? I think that's a fantastic question. So it's honestly surprised me. I think coming, uh, I'm a consultant. So a consultative is in sort of my very nature and hang out with a lot of entrepreneurs or 
fairly consultative in their approach. And, mm-hmm. and I've had advisors that I've found to be fairly consultative as well. But I will uh, say that, yes, it is different. And that surprised me for a lot of people, just the way they begin and end their day and what they do in the middle is different as a result of that. And I think the willingness to ask questions and ask deeper questions. As you said, I know to be able to, Jason, with confidence say to you, I noticed just looking at your history and doing some analysis that a few things jumped out that I wanted to ask you about. That requires a great deal of mutual trust and respect. I have to have confidence in my capability and I have to have confidence to actually start having this conversation. And I think that is the big challenge. It doesn't matter if uh, I used to do a lot of work in leadership. It's the same thing if I'm sitting down with a with a colleague or an employee to have a difficult conversation, let's say, or which ends up being a very meaningful conversation. Mm-hmm. I've got to have a process, a skill set that's different than the one I had before. And a lot of it is comes from confidence and that comes through repetition. So I think that even though people think I'm already having those conversations, we hear that from people. Mm-hmm. I don't think they are. No. You know, I, I, every time I go to any sort of industry event, and, and now, of course, some managers up there are talking about whatever that's going on in the world, I see people furiously scribbling down notes because I know they're going to go back to their office and call up their clients as if it was that, their information. It's just like, what are you wasting your time on, right? Like, and then you hear these things about like, oh, yeah, like I'm totally, you know, my clients love me. I'm on top of everything going on in their lives. Yet the number one reason people leave their advisor still to this day forever is I don't hear from them. Right. Let alone if you ask the question of, do they understand you? Right. Like what's that, what's that number going to look yeah. like? That is our ultimate goal is to have people feel understood. It's the number mm-hmm. one, I think, need of all human beings. And I think if your advisor can help all of their clients feel yeah. that way, it's an incredible, and I think it's achievable. But I think it's also, here's the thing is there's, there's a scalability issue that people just don't want to address, right? You cannot, if you're familiar with the concept of the Dunbar number, you cannot handle an infinite number of right. relationships, Yes, right? I understand. Yeah. So, you know, the reality is, is the average advisor in this country deals with something like 375 households. Mm-hmm. Not sustainable. There's no right. way you can actually know 375 households any great level of intimacy. Right. So the reality is, is that solutions like yours and the trend in the, in the industry really, and people need to start dealing with this, is the fact that we are moving to a world where the optimal scenario is closer to what you see in the U.S., which is 50 to 100 households. And that is a big challenge to a lot of incumbents in terms of their profitability and revenue models. It's interesting. On the communication piece, as Laurie talks about, uh, Jeff alluded to earlier, we're working with a firm right now to launch for the end of March their discovery zone under our platform. And part of that communication that we brought to the table to them was, when we pull in your statements from national, SMS notifications will go to your clients to let them know those statements in there. We'll track to let you know that the client actually opened that statement and viewed that statement. Mm-hmm. And we'll start to push that to your CRM for you automatically mm-hmm. in your data. So it's, as you talk about being able to scale, it's let's know that the client's getting information, reading it and seeing it and engaging with it. Yep. And the ones that aren't, I'll then go focus on getting them engaged, exactly. which allows me to scale up. Yeah. So that's one of the things in our discovery zone we're helping to do on the client side for the communication level. Oh, interesting. You hit something up on there. So hit on something there quite well, too, is that you know, communication of these things allows you to leverage other people's technology, mm-hmm. right? So you mentioned CRM. I think, too, you know, you slap in the Salesforce. Salesforce already has AI that talks about probability of loss or retention of clients, right? So you know, being able to piggyback on each other's innovations yeah. like this is hugely valuable. So a couple of questions I always ask before we wrap it up, and you may all three want to give different answers, but you may just want to give one. So uh, the first one is, if you, if you had one wish as to one thing you can change in this industry or your company, whatever it is, what would it be? I kind of divide the industry into two camps. One is for banks. I wish they would, I understand how they have to operate in an efficient model and everyone's going to these standard consolidated models where everything goes through one hub and every business gets a similar solution. 
But the challenge there is the decision process and the ability for them to move with early stage companies like ours, it mm -hmm. makes it very difficult for us, yeah. even if we score well, uh, and well, if they, they truly also... want to innovate, how, yeah. if they're going to innovate, then maybe the line businesses need to get back in control of the solutions. And I know that that changes a complete operational model, but it allows them to deliver solutions to the clients quicker. For the independents, I have them in a different camp, which is is to evolve and adopt to use that disadvantage of, of the banks mm -hmm. as their advantage and figure out how to access their data and release it into their business. And I think that will allow them to be the differentiator because they can move quicker against the banks. So we can get opening, open banking. How much of the, what we can build out ourselves are you running into with the major banks? I think there's starting to be a realization that there's three firms that are realizing they can't keep up with the spend of green and blue. Um, and yes, that's about right. <laughs> what they're struggling with is, is letting go or the view that they have to get something from the U.S. market to be validated. Uh, yeah, well, we can we can dive into that one if you want, but, but yeah, that's just... <sighs> but lastly, I mean, you mentioned open banking. I mean, we um, participated in a number of panels on open banking mm -hmm. uh, last fall. And, and, it'll be, it'll be, <laughs> and a couple of industry events as well, too. And, you know, FinTech Forum Montreal, like just about every panel was on open banking of one scenario or another. What we would like to see ideally is, is the industry come together, which really means the big FIs to create an open architecture that's safe and secure to allow clients to port their information uh, and allow them to pick the solution providers that best suit their situation. Now, whether that- I said a wish, not miracle, uh, but yeah. <laughs> anyways, we'll have that to, to Santa. Okay, so- You well, want to add something? Yeah, that covers it, okay. So the next question is, what are the largest challenges that you've encountered in uh, in building this business? I think a principle that I keep coming back to is, do you want to be first or do you want to be right? And mm -hmm. I'm sure you've, you know, philosophically we have on that. We started this company two and a half years ago, and we've been building out to be right. And in this industry, in the wealth space, I think it's important to be right. So that's... One of the learnings along the way is kind of going back and forth and saying, should we launch? Should we launch this? You know, it's kind of a not say half baked, but it's, you know, mm. almost fully baked. Uh, send it out. I think the learning is that if you're going to be a partner with these independent firms, which is our objective, mm -hmm. that's how we prefer to work rather than a vendor. Then you have to be right because they're, you know, this is a critical backbone of their entire business. It has to be right. And so having those conversations along the way so are, are so very important, I think. You need to get things out to the market and test it, get feedback from the market. We've done that in different ways, just not full release kind of ways. So I think that that's, that's been a journey that's been very important for us. And I don't know that there's a right answer to it either. There's a lot of good arguments for being first, mm -hmm. but I feel being right is probably the right, was the right choice for They're us. They're not mutually exclusive. Like, <laughs> like was difficult. first, Excite was first, yes. Alta Vista was first. Exactly. Well, I mean, it's one of those, it's, uh, for you ever read Ray, Ray Kurzweil? Oh, um, that's an insurance company. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You ever read Kurzweil? He basically says, like, the most you know, great ideas die because of bad timing. Technology's not there, right? And if you look yeah. at a lot of the companies that are now unicorns, you know, these things were launched back, you know, these concepts were launched back in the dot-com bubble and failed miserably. Yeah. But now the tech's there, the understanding's there, the, you know, people's implementation, the use of, of, of mobile 
parallels there, mm-hmm. and has just driven these companies into you know decacorn uh, territory in some cases. So, right. Yeah. So being being right and being first, you know, being right and first at the right time is what's important. But yes. It's really hard to get that Venn diagram of the three things to overlap. Well, absolutely. I mean, we started exploring and talking about aggregation two and a half years ago with people, yeah. and I would say, although we have no formal research on that, people's appetite for it has improved dramatically. Well, a lot of people got burned by Tycoon back in the day, right? That was the first aggregator that I remember anyone looking at, and thing broke every five at five seconds, right? So you start. I remember when I started talking to them about like, hey, look at what Mint.com's doing. Like, right. How can we leverage this, right? And that was years ago, and they were like, well, we've already tried this, and it's less like it's different this time. <laughs> like, yeah. To to your point, I think the level of readiness in the industry is it seems to be meeting us exactly where we're at. Is it readiness or stuff. fear? Like, I mean, like, like, let's be honest, right? Like, I, I make this, I make this statement all the time. Um, you know, fintech as an industry is probably something that it only exists solely because the incumbents allowed it to exist. It's because they did not take, you know, they did not see the, this, this, the moving tides and realizing the truth of the matter, which is that all companies are going to have to be tech companies are dead. And frankly, if they had invested in their core under, under uh, core technologies themselves over time, these this this robust ecosystem we see building up would be far far less invasive to them, but they have no choice now. And let's not kid ourselves. There's that saying about you know if I'm I can't remember who said it first, but if I'm in any business that Amazon's not in, I I wake up every morning thinking thank God Amazon is not in my business. I agree. Like they've still piped their mainframes. If we talk to one more institution that says, well, we're working on a data migration that ties all this together, and then you start hearing. I got to pull up my IBM 1967 mainframe manual to figure it out. Yeah. Can we find a guy who still understands how to fix the vacuum tube computers is what I'm, you know, <laughs> how many it's, oh man. We were in a meeting earlier in the week that somebody was still talking about using Fortran and I haven't touched Fortran in 20 some years. I know. I mean, I, yeah, I, you know, was looking at trying to pull data from my custodian, found an export and it was in COBOL and I'm just like, oh God, oh God, what year am I living in? And it's not the provider's problem to some extent. It's it's so baked into their institution from the technology they have to rip it out. Yeah, I mean, and the, the mentalities change, right? Technology was something that you bought once, you set it in the corner, and you basically let it amortize over time. And then, you know, what was the upside? It worked, right? Yeah. What was the upside? It worked, but then it becomes so archaic that it's like, well, the bridge is going to fall down now. It was a sense of control as well, right? I mean, having bare metal was about control. Yeah. Right? I've got my data servers. My guys, everyone's controlling it. I've got either my empire or it's just, I've got control of everything. And the concept of pushing to the cloud again, where I'm saying, well, someone else is gonna manage my servers, but I'm gonna manage the applications on top of that. It's, it's a different mind shift. I get that. You know, it's, it's, it's a different, yeah. The understanding that data is really abstract and not actually something physical is something that they all struggle with. I mean, I still think back to having to pull, oh God, when I was at Scotia, I'm gonna pull old statements from microfiche machines. And, <laughs> oh, it's like, oh, you know, it's, it still exists. It still exists, but like you couldn't even, like it was like, it was so much of it. You just had to settle on doing the quarterlies or the uh, the end of the year ones, right? And it's just, it was, it was utterly painful. And the interesting thing, you know, if you think about firms, one of the reasons I think we're getting good take up with some of the independent dealer brokers is the fact that the banks like Royal Bank, nobody can afford to keep up with Royal Bank and R&D no. and spend. But Amazon, as you said, you know, Amazon's in that business. Amazon's taking everything they're using for their businesses and offering up to people to build services with. Yeah, no kidding. They're just getting into uh, into group insurance now. Yeah. Right. So it's 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 just a matter of time before they look at the most scalable business there is in the world, which is money, <laughs> and they basically decide to take a slice of that. So part of our open architecture philosophy was that we're not going to build everything. We built a great core framework. We can plug the data. We can make it work. And a great example, our client discovery zone. So we've got a conference bridge that we've put in there and integrated. 
So if I'm now engaging with a client online, mm -hmm. that's actually getting recorded. So now the show your work becomes easier because now I've got to record it from that. Yeah. But then the next step was, well, we'd like that to be in our CRM. So we were like, hey, well, we can turn on this AWS service. We'll transcribe that video to yep. text and we'll push the text to, yeah. right? Fantastic. And we're not the R&D yeah. group that invented it, but we'll integrate it for yeah. you. And it's interesting because you always have these challenges. I mean, I'm sure you've, you've discovered the, what I call the token problem, which is the one software rule them all problem that everybody wants to have the one thing that's going to fix it all. Yeah. And I like to refer to it as then basically resulting in what I call the crappy CRM problem. You know, you have yeah. this one thing that was designed to do X, but you know, it'd be really good if I could just use this and put them all my contact information in. And next thing you know, you got an asset management platform with the crappy CRM and history attached mm -hmm. to it, right? Resisting that urge and being able to say, we don't have to do that, we can still work with yeah. what you're doing is the way to go. And I think it's a real challenge to get people to understand you're not gonna have the one ring to rule them all. Um, <laughs> so, so basically the last question I have for you is, and you can all answer one answer, what excites you the most about your company, what you're working on the industry in general? Like what gets you up in the morning to keep doing what you're doing? I'll quickly say, and I, I would love to hear the others as well, is that you talked about timing and yes. readiness. It's exciting for us to be out speaking with with mm -hmm. prospects and engaging with our clients on the projects that, mm -hmm. that we've started, because sometimes you can just feel it's the right time. And mm -hmm. I feel it's the right time. That motivates us in so many ways when we go back and work with our development team to start doing small improvements on what we have, but also the excitement of bringing in new people. We're in a exciting growth stage for our company. So, mm -hmm. you know, we're hiring people, bringing people into the team, leading them into what is a very exciting time in wealth. I think. And we're part of that. We don't want to just be a part of that. We want to help lead that. And that gets me excited. Excellent. I just to stand on that is, is I'm amazed at how open, uh, particularly the independent firms are in terms of trying to figure out how to do a new path and go a new path. It wasn't always that way. No, I, really, I have been but, pushing a ball up a hill of my dealer forever. But <laughs> I think both, like I said, there's two, there's two camps in the independence and I hope the, the, the enlightened camp gets bigger because mm -hmm what we're recognizing as people open up their kimonos is a lot of the things that are that what they believe are broken between interconnection of data can actually be solved mm -hmm. they don't have to do this all on their own uh and okay. they're also starting to recognize that maybe it's time to trust the right partners to help get this done at price points that make sense for them and from a business standpoint and i think they're starting to become enlightened we're getting people that we're talking to providing ideas that we're already incorporating and showing them in live demos. And mm -hmm. they're going, how did you do that in three weeks? Uh, when I came from a bank dealer and that took them four years to do that. And so that goes to where Kendall is showing the power of the cloud yeah. and how you can leverage that in your business. And people are starting to connect those dots. And you know, our clients are coming back to us now saying, well, what about this? Well, why don't we test this out and we'll add it to our roadmap? Okay. And so I think there's a there's a speed and opportunity that independents yeah. have right now to really solidify their businesses. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I've lived that struggle with one of my little side hustle businesses and you know, we finally get someone to agree to a proof of concept. And it's like, well, yeah, I can spend this out in two weeks. And they're like, no, you can't. Like, yeah, we can. Right? And there's, they're just not used to that kind of speed. That's what does excite me right now is dealing with the clients we are that you can always build a roadmap for features that yeah. you can guess where the market's going, but then to have them say, <laughs> no plan survives first contact with the enemy. <laughs> yeah. So to have them say, I have this idea of X and then you say, well, give me a day or two. And as Jeff says, we'll go back and we'll skunk work a prototype, yeah. you know, short sprint and to be put that into production within three to six weeks for yeah. them mm -hmm. and then have them go, Oh, yeah. can I also get X? Yeah. And they're like, or even just wireframe it and basically send it back to that day. Like, would you like it to look like this? Right? Like yeah. It's just, I, I think but, that, but I think what's important to layer on that is 
is the way the team has constructed the data warehouse mm-hmm. within the Amazon layers for security is when firms, when we walk them through the security layers and the anonymization of data and the tokenization, and they get their heads around that the data is secure, all of a sudden the fears about being in cloud go away, and then the ideas start flowing. Oh God, sorry. I just, I'm, and it's, and it's once people realize, and so we've had some folks bring third-party people to vet the security layers, and then once they have that that blocked on, all of a sudden the ideas. Honestly, it's just, it's it's so funny because I do this in one public speaking gig on a regular basis. It's just about informing advisors on technology that exists in the, in this, in this, in the ecosystem. And I basically do this one piece on, you know, start off with like, here's the trends driving everything into the cloud. I'm like, stop being scared of the cloud, okay? Like I, I, like, I don't know what burned you or what pictures you actually got out on the internet before, what you're afraid of, but it's it's not like that. And, you know, I often have to educate them that guess what the biggest security risk is? You, right. not the cloud right it's your password being password yeah. one two three yeah it's you not using <laughs> yeah you you leaving your passwords on a stick it note on, on your on in front of your computer screen it's you know it's not using two factor not being encrypted being like yeah, starbucks exactly like it's oh yeah or, or i'm going to use everything i'm going to work from starbucks and use public wi-fi non-stop without a vpn it's just like oh my god you are the weak point it's not the cloud and it's um it's well said yeah exactly or or really or like no but you know it's can't be secure as my file storage and i'm like can i kick your door down Yes. Okay. So try to kick your door down in a data center. See how fast you get shot. <laughs> right? Like it's not going to happen. Yeah. Right. So is what it is. So thank you very much for your time. This has been great. Um, I wish you lots of success and hopefully a lot more of your stuff gets implemented because God knows the industry needs it. <laughs> thank you, Jason. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. So that was my interview with the leadership team of uh, Four Eyes Financial. Hope you found that insightful. And as always, if you enjoy this podcast, please feel free to leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever it is you get your podcasts. Those things do matter. Thank you. Until next time, I'm Jason Pereira. Take care. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, or find more episodes at fintechimpact.co.